2: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi, and for the month of March, International Women's Month, I'm doing a podcast takeover to uplift women's voices in the arts. In an effort to create the world we want to see and bring equality to the art world, I've kindly asked Man One and Sourdough to step aside this month and allow for myself, a woman of color, to take over the reins. To their loyal fans, don't worry. They will return refreshed in April. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on the episode to support our work. Now let's jump into it. A little about me, I go by Yoshi. I'm a creative strategist who paints murals. I'm a curator, event producer, and I've created festivals and built community-based art projects for about two decades. I've painted all over the world. And I'm a former nonprofit executive, so I've seen the ins and outs of the art world from the administrative side and as an artist. So I'm going to bring you some of my favorite women in the creative field to share their knowledge and experiences with you. They're brilliant, raw, and powerful and have a lot to share. And also, if you're in Los Angeles for the month of March, 2021, I'm unveiling The Land of We, a solo exhibition unlike any other. It's a COVID-safe billboard exhibition, which will be showcased across Los Angeles. So for more info and download the map, Go to erinyoshi.com. That's E R I N Y O S H I.com. In today's episode, we have Judy Baca. One of America's leading visual artists, Dr. Judith F. Baca. Judy has been creating public art for four decades. In 1974, Baca founded the city of Los Angeles's first mural program, which produced over 400 murals and employed thousands of local participants and evolved into the arts organization known as spark the social public art resource center. She continues to serve as spark's artistic director and focuses her creative energy in the UCLA at spark digital mural lab, employing digital technology to promote social justice and participatory public art projects. She is an emeritus professor of the University of California's Los Angeles. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, so thank you so much. We have Judy Baca here today on Not Real Art. Thank you, Judy, for being here with us today. I'm delighted
1: to be with you, Aaron. Looking forward to our discussion here.
2: Oh, me too. I always love meeting with you and talking to you. I always feel like you give me these gems every time that I just want to tattoo on my arm or something so I can remember it always. I <laughs>
1: tattooing them on my arm because I'm forgetting so much. They have to get me when my phone is still working, right?
2: right? Right. So, Judy, take me back. L.A. used to be the mural public art capital of L.A. What was it like in that time?
1: I would say we were the mural capital of the world at that point. What it was like, well, so, I mean, I guess I can kind of give you a trajectory of muralism in Los Angeles. And very early on, long before there was a kind of prevalence and predominance of graffiti art on the street, there was writings on the street, but they were pretty much marking of territory in different neighborhoods. And there was no control over who could paint where. And it was in that climate in about 1973 1972 73 that i stepped out onto the street in the parks that i was teaching at in the east side i was what they call a recreation director <laughs> <laughs> and at the time the parks had this wisdom to hire artists to work in the parks and and so we, i went from park to park and i taught really stupid classes because they didn't want teenagers on their grounds but I taught. So I taught macrame to senior citizens who were, who were blind. <laughs> I, I did preschool to children who are classes that ate my art materials. <laughs> I, I wasn't at all suited for that kind of work. I had been t- trained and had come through the university with a real interest in working with adolescents. That was sort of my focus. And I felt like I had more affinity with them, maybe because I was just a big adolescent myself. Right. So I was teaching in the parks and I started talking to the young people on the streets. In the different parks, and I realized that as I went from park to park, they couldn't travel with me even just a few blocks because of the territorial markings, and of course the prevalence all over the streets was gang writing and in the East Side and South Central, and those were the areas they sent me because of my Spanish surname. Okay, Baca, go directly to hell <laughs> See if you can teach in these parks. But I loved it; it was wonderful. And at that point, when I started to develop the mural program, which, is, which came out of this work with these young people. All I really had to do was put a team together and then approach a wall and maybe get local permissions from the park. But there wasn't all these permittings and there wasn't all of these systems that actually controlled what was done. And that was a moment of huge proliferation of muralism in Los Angeles. And this was in the climate that I became the director of the East Side Mural Program, made my impassioned speech in front of the city council that ended up with it becoming a citywide mural program is what it was called. And literally, the lack of control, the lack of mitigation of what people were proposing to put on a site is what made the proliferation occur. And literally, there were hundreds of works going up, and lots of artists were stepping out into the street at that time. But in 1973, I was painting the first really financially sponsored work. was on the Little Sisters of the Poor convalescent home on Mott and 2nd Street which also turned out to be the site where the Japanese had been taken to the internment camps and the Mexican families had kept their homes. So it was like this really important street and an important moment. The Japanese families came out on the street and we were painting and we included the stories of their families and it was a really interesting experience. And that was model cities money. And that was the very first time I was able to pay the kids to work on the team's and to create a team of over 60 kids. And we painted about 2,000 feet of mural.
2: Wow. That touches my heart in so many ways. My family, we're able to keep our land because another family took it over when my family was interned. Three generations of my family were interned. But also just the idea of, I can't imagine not having, just for the murals, like not having the permit process and to making it where it's more, it's just community-based. It's like you ask permission from people who live in the neighborhood, you get the business owners okay, and then you go. Do you think that the permitting process has really hindered the growth of taking LA out of the running for being the top in the US?
1: I think actually all of those permitting processes and all those sort of bureaucratic controls of the creative process, the community process, has been a huge detriment because I think you have to add another layer to it, which is when public monies became engaged, then the public actually thought that they should be able to tell us what to paint, right? Right. And of course, then it became this contentiousness in various parts of the city. I mean, I remember proposing a mural at Wabash Recreation Center. And literally, you know, we had petitions signed. And I always did the petition process. And we were painting on the Rec and Parks Center. And the only reason we were being allowed to paint there was because the kids kept ripping the door off the front of the building. People kept saying, well, they're just so out of control and this big, terrible gang and They sent a letter to me. I was starting to get a reputation for working in these parks with the kids. And the kids from Wabash Recreation Center, which were identified with White Fence, said, we want the mural lady here. So I went to that site. And sure enough, they had taken the door off the front of the building over and over again. And I just asked the simple question of, why are you doing that? And they said, because they lock us out of the basketball court. (laughs) (laughs) the basketball court. I said, oh, I said, do you think you'd leave the door? if we could get you in there. <laughs> I said, yeah. So I, opened the, I got the basketball courts opened and we painted the front doors and there was no more ripping off the front of the building, <laughs> put the doors in the front of the building ever again. I mean, it was simple, but it was those kinds of solutions that were not being asked by public authorities. And honestly, I think what happened is that when the arts stepped in, when it went into the cultural affairs department and people began to feel... That somehow they were curating what was occurring on the streets, that they should have a kind of aesthetic control, and oversight control. It became really problematic. It became much more problematic. And so, in one case, when the Citywide Mural Project was in full form, and later when its rejuvenation occurred in the 80s, it was funded for about four years in the first machination of Citywide Murals. And then people began to see this work, and there was outcries about the content, because it was talking about police violence. It was talking about issues of immigration. All the things that now you see massive numbers of people speaking about in unison. I mean, in Black Lives Matter and in, in so many other ways. But all of those things were occurring here in Los Angeles, and they were occurring in the Latino and, and Black communities, and of course the poorer communities. That's what started to be the content of those murals. And they were remarkable. I mean, some of them were just cultural celebrations, but a lot of them spoke against gang warfare. A lot of them spoke about the drugs that were being brought into the communities and named names about who was bringing the drugs in. And at Wabash Recreation Center, I was starting to tell the story of me painting there, and we held a community meeting. And there was a Medusa head that we were putting on the front. The face of the center doors became this Medusa head, and her hair went up into a an overhang that was the entrance, a kind of shelter as you go into the space. And we turned that into the Medusa's snake-type images. And she was kind of a remarkably strong female type of image. And it really came out of this talking with the boys. And it was all boys' crews. I couldn't really get girls at that time. And finally, I started integrating my crews with my cousins. to <laughs> so get the girls' <laughs> to join me because it wasn't a women's work. So I'd be the only woman out there. And anyway, at the meeting... There was a woman who stood up and just went into this diatribe against the peace. And you'd say, You guys are just criminals. All you do is destroy our community. You vandalize everything. You should be run out of here. And I was thinking, Oh my God, what a virulent statement. And even though these boys were offering something beautiful and they were offering to do this work in their community to improve it, there was this woman who was so angry. And I leaned over to one of the boys who was kind of a leader of the group and I said, Who's that woman? And he said, "My mother." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "You're kidding me." He said, "It's my mother." There was these battles between generations that also were prevalent. So we were dealing with people who came from Mexico and was experiencing this infusion into a new culture, and the young people were identifying with American culture and creating their own bands of people, of a sort of tribal groups so that they felt more integrated and part of the culture that was here. And that was the big division. So there was those kinds of divisions. There was the divisions in various communities as they were borderline communities. And people thought the murals were going to actually decrease the value of their property. We we heard things like that. We heard tremendous racist stuff about how we don't want those ethnic flavors in our neighborhood. It was almost like they didn't they couldn't stand the smell of frijoles coming from somebody's kitchen. I mean, it was like that. And so Los Angeles, so racially divided, the murals became this really interesting amplification of the differences in the neighborhoods. And for the first time, we put an ethnic face on Los Angeles. You began to see who the people were that lived in different places. And you also began to see the young people, what their concerns were and what ideas they had. And we were putting them together with artists that were people from the community. And those were all really, really interesting things to build on. And my intention was, and my hope with the invention of Spark, the, the Social and Public Art Resource Center, was that we could amplify that. And that could become a very important method of transforming our city into a city that was represented by the visuals of what it really was, this most ethnically diverse city a city of its strength really being people from everywhere in the world and the enclaves of little Tokyo and people, enclaves from the deep south and south central and little Ethiopia. I mean, there was amazing spaces. and eat. I mean, I remember going to a Thai restaurant where the Thai restaurant was fabulous and and there were Elvis impersonators on the stage. I mean, it was like I loved this fusion of cultures and what I thought was so uniquely and so wonderfully Los Angeles.
2: That kind of draws me to a question about how Spark was really even developed. Like you're The co-founder of the Social Public Art Resource Center is really the LA. It's been the LA hub for public art and mural arts for years. How did the space come about and why was it originally started? What were your intentions?
1: Well, when I was working in the East Side as a rec and parks director or leader and teaching in the parks, I was painting at a place called Palmebeck Park. And it was a band show. And that was one of the earliest pieces I did. And I was doing this radical idea of putting together, and this was all in concert with a group of kids from different four different neighborhoods. Because as I was going from neighborhood to neighborhood, and they couldn't travel with me, I became really interested in seeing if we could create a treaty between a number of different neighborhoods and do one thing together. Mi abuelita was that. And that Olympic bandshell was a site that we decided to paint. And of course, we asked permission to the local people, but we didn't really get higher ups authority, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we didn't have public money. I had monies to hire the kids on a crew in the summer programs. And so we were really concerned about people from different neighborhoods coming and attacking us because they were in the wrong territory. I mean, we were actually a coalition from like four different neighborhoods. So we put a guard up on the hill and we had different whistles to tell us who was coming if there was anything in danger. Because if there was danger, we would all go into inside the band shell and disappear. So the mural could disappear in five minutes, right? So we got a whistle that said the police were coming. And there was like cops, like narcs, because the narcotic agents were always circling us. I did have a kid who was like on heroin. I mean, he was like a long-term addict and he was a really great painter and he wasn't using at the site. So it was like, let paint, right? yeah.
2: <laughs> You're like this is a positive in his life. We have to support it.
1: That's what I thought. I mean I mean I couldn't control there's what I, I tried to control what I could, but there was some stuff you just couldn't control. And so when I turned around, I was on the scaffolding, my back was to the public, and up comes the director of Wreck and Parks. He's the head of the whole department. And I just seen him in this meeting with thousands of people, hundreds of people, and I was way in the back of the room, and I saw this little tiny guy. And he'd come from Robert F. Kennedy's administration, and he was a very powerful, and his name was Cy Grieben, a man i never forget. And he believed in urban wildernesses, is what he talked about. And he talked about trying to create a connection between the environment and young people who lived in the inner city. His ideas were very progressive. And I looked down at and I said, oh, my God. I said, you're like God. And he started laughing. He said, I said, well, I saw you in that meeting. I said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, what are you sorry about? I said, I know I'm painting on your wall. (laughs) (laughs) This is your wall, right? It's not mine, right? And I knew that I didn't have permissions. And he said, no, actually, I want to know how to bottle what you're doing. I want to see this happen all over the city. Wow. And I said, okay. (laughs) <laughs> what can I do to help you? I said, well, I need scaffolding. I just giving, I had a checklist of stuff I didn't have. You know, like I had this terrible scaffolding that was it came out of some garbage thing, and it was horrible. I mean, we had to wash the maggots off it to paint on it. I was using house paint. You know, I didn't have any really good paint. We'd go to the paint places and ask them for donations, and they'd give us $5. I mean, it was like, you know, people, they weren't too helpful. So, I mean, it was hard to get donations for this work. And that's how I ended up proposing the Citywide Mural Project. And that's how I ended up leading the mural programs in the, in the city. At a certain point, as I worked in all these different neighborhoods, I realized that one of the things that was really critical was to find a way to put people in one place where they could work across culture. The affirmation of culture in individual neighborhoods and the amplification of the people who live there was great. But it also required a communication between these really separated and enclaves of people where giant Petri dishes, they were colliding at the edges. I got a call from the Army Corps of Engineers, because by that point I was well-known as a mural lady, and I was running this program. And they brought me to the Tehunga Wash. And the Tehunga Wash was this long reach of the channel, concreted, the river destroyed. And I stood on the edge of that river. And I saw this terrible scar on the land. And I actually, I grew up alongside of that river as it was transformed because I grew up in Pacoima. I was born in Watson and I grew up in Pacoima. So when I was a kid, we used to play in those river bottoms when they concreted them. And they finished that by the, you know, the seventies. I think they finally finished all of it. They were terrible spaces. They were places where the communities were divided and so forth. I wanted to paint that site and I wanted to bring people from all over the city that had been in the other programs. And I didn't have a way to do that because it was city money and it was a city program. So therefore, I had to invent a nonprofit to take the for the Great Wall. And that was entirely why the Spark was formed, as to be the receiver for the Great Wall of Los Angeles money. I had no intention of beginning an institution that has frankly been the hardest thing I've ever done. I would say parallel... In terms of difficulty, the Great Wall of Los Angeles and Spark <laughs> both together really difficult things to do. But truly, keeping an institution alive and keeping its values as they are really difficult, really difficult. And I never intended to be a leader in an executive director, I never intended to be a fundraiser, I never intended to be a person that would do anything more then paint giant walls. That's what I wanted to do.
2: I understand totally.
1: Where do you find the structure, right?
2: Right. I mean, that's the thing. You know, sometimes I found that I've had to develop the structure in order to paint the walls because you need that sort of infrastructure, way to funnel money, way to do accounting, way to raise money, way to get the tax deduction, all that stuff by having a structure. So I really think of nonprofits as like, they're like the gift that keeps on taking. They're fantastic and wonderful in so many ways, but they're so difficult. I completely empathize with that one. I also was wondering, since you kind of touched on the Great Wall, how did really that idea come about? I mean, just even the content of it, because you, know, you kind of shared a little bit about how The space came to be, and you knew you wanted to do something there. But how did you come up with this idea? You wanted to basically document decades of history and the people's history. Where did that idea come from?
1: Well, I have to say, it was before Howard Zen, you know, history That that didn't exist. And it was before ethnic studies. It wasn't like I was going to be able to go to the shelf in a university library and pull down Black history. It was a problem in terms of gathering the materials and the information that we needed. I mean, it was like first source materials to be able to tell that story. And what I saw was, it's interesting because I have to say part of it came from being in relationship to others. I mean, you know, to actually widening my world and realizing that other people had different experiences. Like I, I had a really good friend, who was the co-founder of Spark, who's one of the most marvelous women, and still she's on our board still, Christina Schlesinger, whose father was the great American historian Arthur Schlesinger. And um, he's written great books on the American presidency, he served in the Kennedy administration in the Camelot era, but a brilliant historian. I had an experience of being with her family and listening to the history in which they knew that their parents, their great-grandparents, and their great-great-grandparents. And they knew the history of what their families had contributed. They had mountains named after them. They had they had written books in different generations. And I realized that perhaps because I didn't know my father, you know, I never knew my father. My father probably never knew I was born. He got shipped out, when, was sent home after he and my mother were together in 1946. And so It was just at the end of the war, and then he was sent back. He was in the Navy. They met at the Palladium, and he was sent back to the East Coast. And Valentino never knew about my birth. I had a whole part of my life that was missing, a story missing. But also I had a whole understanding that we didn't have, that most people that I was working with in those communities needed so much to know their value. And that self-esteem was really critical and that how could they have that if they didn't know that that corner was named for their grandfather or that their grandfather brought produce for the first time into this region or all of those things. Right. So when I started to, to say, think about the Great Wall and what we would do there, I was going to bring all these different kids from different neighborhoods. And I thought, what unites us? What would be the uniting force here? to tell our stories. And how do we do that? So as I started to do this research on it, people started showing up with all these things, like my great, great, great grandfather owned Griffith Park, right? There was a material, it was a land grant, you know, from Mexico. And I was like, what? How can it be that we don't know our stories? So I began to excavate those stories. It was really much later that I finally excavated my own and did find the whole story of my father and everything, which was just really, really literally in my late 60s that I do that. So anyway, I think it's very important, as I've seen people, you know, and congressmen and people like that say they keep a tree from being torn down in a town because it was there when they were in their childhood, because it became important in terms of memory. So whose memories are saved? Whose stories are told? Whose history is taught? And that became a quest that's been really my life's work. The land's memory, whose stories are told and remembered, and how we actually come up with the real story of America.
2: That kind of pushes me in, as you're talking about teaching and like learning, I learned recently, I didn't even know this until probably the last couple of times that I was hanging out with you, when you shared with me that you had taken a class with Siqueiros and I was totally blown away with this, because obviously I've seen his huge portrait that you have at Spark, but I didn't realize that you were actually connected to him in a real tangible way. What was he like, and what was taking his class like? What did he teach?
1: I wasn't actually in relationship. In the early 70s, when I was painting Mi Abuelita, in 1970, I painted Mi Abuelita. Somebody came to the park and handed me a book of Siqueiros' work. And I'd never seen it. Now, I already had a degree in art. I had taken, I don't know how much art history, and had never seen anything from Mexico. And it was right there that I decided I was going to Mexico to see this work. And I went early in the early 70s. And Christine and I made this trip. And we went to see the works of Siquetos. And he was building the polyforum at that time and doing the March of Humanity. I then planned to come back and get into do his workshop. There were no women in his workshop. I ended up going in 1977 with a group of Chicano artists, and he had passed by the time I got there. So when I was there, I was studying in his workshop shortly after he passed, and I was working with his assistants, with Luis Arinal, with Angelica, his wife, that were running this workshop. So I had not a direct relationship to him, but a relationship to his legacy and his work that he preserved in Cuernavaca. So you know his house was there. It was very, very close proximity to what he was doing, and I was learning his processes, his methods of division of space, his method of how he talked about uh, dynamic imagery. And at that point, the Mexicans had brought in artists from around the world. There were like twenty-six people in the workshop, and there was there was no women. Me, I was the only one. They also, there at the during the time he was there, the Chilean muralists came because. It was really about the time of the coup and that terrible murder of all of the of the poets and the writers and the muralists in, in Chile during the Allende coup. And they were talking about painting in the river. They were talking about the work that they were doing. So I had this amazing experience of being there at a moment that was critical. People trying to figure out how would they maintain the work of the maestro? How would they, and in fact, hanging in that studio at that time was America Tropical, because he was in the process of preparing to restore it. He was redoing that painting. Of course, he never made it across the border. They didn't let him cross. And so I was completely transfixed by the fact that they said that we didn't know anything about painting murals, that we were plopping images in the middle of a wall. The criticism that they gave us when they saw Mi Abuelita and you know some of the early works that I did was like, wow, I really had a big slap alongside of the head to really rethink about what does it really mean to make a mural in relationship to architecture? What is different of this this work is that it's not an easel painting made large. And that's primarily what we were doing. We were easel painters trained to make easel paintings. If we were trained at all, those images were in no way in relationship to the architecture or to the community in which they were placed. Some of us began to approach speaking to the issues, but I was really interested in moving much further than that into, you know, a participatory methodology that not only included the ideas of the people, but included them in the process of the making. And that was really tough, along with trying to figure out how to raise all the money, how to get everybody paid, because that was one of my values. I never have done a mural project In which I work with volunteers. Everybody is paid. It's hard work.
2: That's a lot. I mean, it's so much. I honestly feel like doing community-based mural work is so much harder than just painting a mural. If I can paint a mural from my brain and it's just my idea, it's so much easier. There's so much less logistics. There's so much less moving pieces. And I really feel like you've really launched your own methodology, like you're saying, in community-based work. Walk me a little bit through that. What do you see as your steps to do a community-based project?
1: There are different levels of it, right? The Great Wall, perhaps, is the highest level of collaboration and community-based work. I would say that it's the pinnacle of public practice. Because in that piece, I started with a really wide reach to historians and to people who lived through a particular era or who represented that era. So in other words, in the first 10 people that were on the teams for the great first thousand feet, there was a person from every ethnic group. I mean, we had Native American, we had Asian, we had African American, we had Latino. We, we had male and men and women diversification. And the kids that were working in the teams were also of those representations from different neighborhoods across the city. So I was really clear from the beginning, very diverse and then reaching out to historians that could give us a kind of grounding of the historical data that would include the very beginnings of California in particular, but the very beginnings of our relationship to Native Americans. But of course, as this started, what I hit almost instantly was this profound, overwhelming information about what truly is an American penchant for destruction and for genocide and for the killing of so many Native people and the creation of slavery on so many different levels with immigrant groups. So the, the hard part of all of this is if you tell the truth of the story as it begins to, as I became more and more educated, I became educated decade by decade, essentially, deeper and deeper in each section, right? You can read a history book, but then do very specific research on what were African-Americans doing in the 1920s What was the most significant events that were affecting their lives? And that's the way the Great Wall developed in terms of looking at very specific things. And, of course, what to choose to put in of these stories. I became overwhelmed by how do you make a mural that is not the most negative story you have ever seen about race in America?
2: It's like pulling hope out of that. It's like the magic that you have to create out of all the trauma and pain.
1: Exactly. And that's the hardest part, right? How do you do that? And what I found was that the answer was there were these amazing people who were incredibly resilient, who lived through Jim Crow, for example, or lived through a particular era, and they triumphed. Mrs. Laws in the 19, late 40s and early 50s, who basically broke the Black Covenant laws, who just wouldn't move from a neighborhood that was called Watts when they decided that she should be kicked out of that. Her son was coming back from the war. It was time for black people to move because they didn't have enough housing. So they were going to infuse it with white people. So all those stories, you find these triumphant people. So I tried to focus on finding those people and also telling the story to embed them in the context. It's like when we get to John Lewis, think of the context in which he gets beaten and makes that crossing over the bridge. That's the story, right? And then I was looking specifically for LA. So wide, wide reach. Wide reach is to different people who represent these different ideas. And then the second level is to bring in the vetting of the content and select the most important events for each of these eras. And then vet that through different prisms of knowledge. And what I'm talking about is a prism could be age, a prism could be gender, it could be sexuality, it could be Economic status, it could be a child might have a different view that is an important one to listen to. They'll ask a question that's poignant and it's really obvious and simple, but it's really important. Like why did that happen? Why could they not be there? Why were they told to leave? I mean, those kinds of questions. and so you realize, okay, we are trying to tell you why, and that has to be in the image. Then the next thing after the vetting, then it's the selection of the imagery and the collection of metaphors that tell that stories. One of the most poignant metaphors was a fighting 442nd a survivor who from the Japanese internment camps who told me, he said, you know, Judy, just at the end of our interview, he said, we were the very fabric of America. And that just rolled around in my head until the fighting 442nd became the stripes of the American flag. That's how that image through his metaphor, right? My purpose in these things is to give visual to the voice, to make that transition between representation, equitable treatment, the truth of a voice and the sentiment, and then the creation of the visual. Okay, now that's just one piece. That's the development of content, right? The next is to do that with the teams, that's where I get to use all of my training in art education and education in the university. And I'm, then it was like, how do I create teams of kids who have been at war with each other <laughs> most of their lives? And I knew that well because I grew up in Pacoima and we were at war all the time, right? So how do you bridge those differences? And how do you bridge the gender differences in which the domination of boys are so prevalent within ethnic communities like Latino communities? Like, And how do you deal with it when they're manifesting it? I developed all kinds of methods of working with the kids. Like if you got into conflict, I had a method of actually started to want to get into a fist fight. and then the people were separated and then they had to have a meeting, but the meeting was with them not speaking at all. Their advocates had to speak for them. And so the bestie would be doing this thing, well, Julio thinks blah, blah, right. And then, then the other guys, the other guy's best friend says, yeah, but you are blah, blah. You know, so they go there, but they do the fighting, but it's, Second level, right?
2: Yeah, it's like emotionally removed.
1: It's emotionally removed. And then, then we come up to some agreement about what we do. You can't throw him out of the truck again because you nearly killed him, right? Things like that. So, all those methods of the processes of working with teams, we have a game called Who I Thought You Were. Like, coming after a number of weeks together, we do these skits around who I thought you were. I saw when you came in and I thought you were a gangster and that you were really dangerous. And now I know that you're just a big wuss, right? <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? So the kids actually play it out, and it's hilarious and it's fun, but it's also really, really important to building the relationships that we have had over a lifetime. And now I can say we go back almost 40 years, and the Great Wall relationships, many of them, are still intact. There are people who still are in relationship to each other. Those children I can never get rid of. I keep saying, no, I'm not your mother, go away. And they send me Mother's Day cards and you know all that stuff make me angry. But we are still in touch.
2: That definitely lays it out. But you know, it then brings me to the question. So you're a professor, UCLA. What drove you to being a professor? And then it's like you didn't stop there. You decide to develop your own PhD program. It's like always taking it to the next level. What really sparked off your career into that field?
1: I was running a Spark, and I didn't have income, really. All the money went to the programs and the people that were working with me. So I needed a job, right? I needed to teach, and I needed to have a regular income because I didn't really want to go back into the poverty I came out of, right? But also, I really felt that the work that I was doing needed to be institutionalized in educational systems, that there was so much to learn from it. There was so much work to be done around The kind of training that we needed to do to get another generation of artists into the world, to get another generation of young people having the stepping stones to advance and not having to start at the very beginning as I did and invent everything. So it became increasingly important to me to do the teaching, to see Spark thrive and continue. And I'm just truly, truly excited that that's happening now.
2: Yeah, I was always blown away that your class came to you at Spark. I'm like, how did she do that? How did you get them to let you have the class on your location site where the students get to come there because you had that amazing lab?
1: Yes, there was a hunger strike at UCLA. In fact, today, this morning, I spent the morning drawing the hunger strike and the 100th anniversary mural that I'm doing for UCLA. The hunger strike is going to be very prevalent within the mural. I had some negotiating power because I was coming, I was a full professor already coming from Irvine and I had been teaching fine arts and then doing my secondary work in community on top of that. So I was like, you know, living five jobs. I lived multiple jobs and it was very difficult from, you know, being a professor, full-time professor, being a full-time artistic director at Spark being a full-time public artist and doing works and commissions and trying to advance the Great Wall into completion. So it was like one level. And then being a public scholar, being a public person, which became increasingly exhausting and another level of work, but important to support the overall work. The current level of collaboration I'm doing or the community practice I'm doing with the Great Wall, with the UCLA 100th anniversary is a little different So, you know, every case is like it's configured differently. So I'm working with a group of graduate students to to imagine a future for the university in America, because we're doing a future panel. And I'm interpreting, imagine a pandemic and not being able to work in a team. So we're doing these Zoom calls in which we're gathered around the screen and we're dropping in images and each of us coming in with our research. And then we're making decisions on how to place those things. It's been really fascinating. And difficult to do this. It's another level of working that I think is going to have some really interesting promises in the future. And I'm so glad that I was able to develop the technological arm of this work. And it has a long way to go. I mean, there's much more we can do with the technology and muralism.
2: I mean, I feel like you do community-based mural arts or community-based arts, and there's a strange hierarchy in the field. I feel like between what they consider to be like fine art, contemporary art and community-based art. To me, I don't quite understand why it exists, except that it feels very supremacist in rationale because you know, I grew up looking up to the Mexican muralists, the Riveras, and going down and seeing the Bellas Artes and really just seeing that work honored in such a powerful way. I didn't realize until I started to try and navigate in the States in the art field about this hierarchy with community-based arts and other arts. Why do you feel like that is, that it exists here in the States and how do you navigate that? Because, you, you know, your work is everywhere.
1: The high art world has ignored me in total, really. Well, early on, I decided that I wasn't going to try to make it in the high art world. Because I realized that getting a gallery and being represented and all of that was just simply going to make me make work for sale that was going to determine what I made. In other words, I was going to make something if it sold the next month when the rent was due, I was going to make the same thing to see if I could sell it again, right? Another, I mean, what if I just operated in a different way, that the work I did was about, it was spiritual, that it was deeply important on a soul level to me, and that I earned money in another way. So I began very early separating the two. And that is really helped me because I thought I can teach, I can work in a nonprofit, I can write grants, I can I can do a lot of other stuff, I can paint a sign. I have some skills, right? I started out as a young kid, in my eight, 17 years old, 18 years old, being an illustrator. I was an illustrator for Lockheed Aircraft, drawing little plane parts. I draw well. I can do that. So, so these kinds of things, I separated those things, and I realized that I didn't have to genuflect at that altar. And so I watched the way that people casted the work, and I I was called everything. Early on, they confused me with the kids because I was young enough. They just thought I was one of them. Yeah, I was a gang member, right? Or they thought I was a Street kid. I could tell by the way people talk to me, and I like, oh, Well, this is about you know. Here I was already with a degree in art, and they were like treating me like I was a gang member. So I was a street artist. Street artist. I was a oh, I don't know, urban artist. I mean, there were so many terms. And when you look at the early writing about me, it's all really crazy, different descriptions. Tough, bright Chicana sits behind paint splattered desk is the way the Smithsonian Magazine wrote about me, the first time they wrote about me in the seventies tough, young, bright Chicana sits behind paint splattered desk. And I mean, these words, or Ray Bradbury, who wrote about me once saying, because I was supporting these graffiti artists in in, in in Irvine and it was the Orange County Register. And he wrote, open I said there was a thin line between those kids who were making these graffiti works and, and muralism. And he said, the only thin line that should be drawn is across the name on the paycheck of UC for this professor Baca, right? You know, a very bad Barry, right? And people would revere him, but he was actually a right-wing idiot. There's all of those things in terms of the hierarchy of the arts. And I saw that, that basically the, the legacy and the intellectual currency of people of color, of those that actually came out of these neighborhoods, was denigrated in a very conscious way. It was about you know, saying that it was bad art, that it was not good art. And I think that goes all the way back to the rupture in Mexico. In which the you know the Mexican historians note this time, you know when Rockefeller destroyed Diego Rivera's work, it was not just simply about his work, but about the corporate millionaires and billionaires that were really interested in not seeing a representative representative work or representation because it could become critical of increasing the growth of this wealthy class and privilege. And so look at Edward Beaverman was the local Venice muralist, his brother was on the blacklist. He writes about this whole thing about this hierarchy and abstractionism then was elevated. So you see Diego Rivera's demean and he's and this Cueva guy is elevated or Tamayo is held in higher esteem because they were increasingly abstractionist and more metaphoric and, and they well they made beautiful work. They did not make work that was about the moment and the time. The WPA it was modeled after Livingston Biddle wrote to Roosevelt, who said, "Look at what these Mexicans are doing down here. They're actually you know doing this education for the public, and they're working in public buildings, and we need this in the Works Progress Administration. We need a Works Progress Administration, which incidentally we need again, right? It would put artists to work at plumbers' wages, as they said, and put us into making public works. So that hierarchy has to do with race. It also has to do with economic status. It has to do with the creation of wealth so that instead of trading stocks, you can trade art, right? And that you create this wealthy legacy of patrimony. So you can't create patrimony out of these less than popular ideas. So community arts becomes a term for bad art or kiddie art or art that is not made by professionals. And yet other countries, like and even in Canada, you can see them integrating the First Nation people's work right alongside of contemporary artists, even though it's prescribed in terms of what they can paint because of having to use particular figures and colors. It's given much more credence. And we created this hierarchy that we have perpetrated. Now, right now, there's an amazing moment going on in which there's this concern about what will the arts do in light of Black Lives Matter? What will the arts do at this particular moment of the real cry for justice in America? And what about artists that have never been represented? So the Whitney has offered this show, The Mexican muralists, which is everybody's going crazy about. They're just saying, oh my God, what a show. What an amazing set of work we never saw. So New Yorkers are, it's been really quite remarkable. I just did a panel for them. You're seeing Mocha, for example, offer this year my work, the entire world wall will be at the Geffen. That's coming. Congratulations. That's Thank huge. You. It's huge.
2: Yeah. It goes to show how many times can you remix dead white men's work and call it new and exciting? Like, you know, showing the same work over and over again by these popular few, it's been done. So it, it needs to open up to more people, people of color, women, new voices, diverse cultures. It's, the time is ripe i totally agree with you right now is it, you can feel it in the crux of the transition right now
1: and the question really is whether they'll make the real transition whether it's a moment of genuflecting at what has become overwhelming to them in terms of lack of representation and injustice everybody is recognizing injustice of course except for the 70 million people that voted for trump who are white supremacists i mean watch more on this level in terms of what we're going to be seeing coming up in the attack of public buildings, uh, of capitals all across the 50 states. That's why the Great Wall is so important right now, and the continuance of it. And we are moving forward into the production of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the building of the bridge. All of this is now, it's been supported, and it's. there'll be announcements shortly about the Great Wall's continuance.
2: That's so exciting. I can't wait to learn more about it. How can people follow along to find out more information about the work that you're doing, the Great Wall? Where do people find out information about what you have going on?
1: Well, Spark is pretty prevalent on social media. SparkinLA.org is our website. You should sign up on our newsletter and get get onto our social media stuff so you can see we just recently a wonderful virtual event from our archives on Chicano muralism, because we have literally fifty thousand slides because we have been collecting images throughout the lifetime which is now forty five years of Spark's life, which is in itself a miracle that Spark is still alive forty five years later. I mean literally we've gone to, to point right to the edge of bankruptcy over and over again with no funding when the city mural program was destroyed Arisen out of the ashes like a phoenix over and over again, and continued to support artists' work. The Healing Blanket that we just came through with 600 women participating from around the world, curated by Marietta Bernstock, was a remarkable show, and hopefully the quilts and the, the embroiders will come, but we did it virtually. You can go online to Spark and walk through a wonderful virtual gallery, gorgeous gallery, and see these works, along with videos and so forth, of women talking about domestic violence that has risen during the pandemic. So this year we're going to be doing a show that's coming from Alaska about the environment. That is including a First Nation and also artists from the Northwest that are dealing with a global warming. And there's some incredibly powerful work that will be coming out. There'll be symposiums with that as well. So watch what Spark is doing because Spark is staying right on topic. We're staying right on the most important issues that are affecting us. And we're giving venue to artists who do that work. If we weren't there, there would be very few venues in which artists could actually explore the idea of, what if I asked every woman I knew, what if I send the word out around the world and ask them to sit down with a needle and make something about these experiences? And then JudyBachner.com, you can go into JudyBachner.com that keeps up
2: with what I'm doing. Fantastic! And what is the painting that you're working on right now? You said you're working on a large piece.
1: I'm working on a piece called the Matriarchal Mural, which is interestingly enough is a work I started in the '80s and I never finished it. It's a revolving mural. It's three panels, twelve feet wide and ten feet high. It's actually it's perfect right now because it was so far ahead of its time. It's about when God was woman and what would happen if God was a woman, and the imagery is about women standing unscathed of a volcanic eruption. And each of them, their hands are in power gestures. And it revolves into an ancient goddess that's giving birth to a vision of the heart. And it's actually one of the earliest fossils of 500 million years ago, a fossil of the beginning of life, the first organisms that became life. So it's about women as progenitors of life of procreators and i believe that this is absolutely related The misogyny that's on the rise is related to the misogyny against the earth of mother earth so it makes a spiritual relationship between the earth and women as givers of life
2: i totally agree with that i've been saying that you know how they were saying like the future is female and then others were saying oh present is female i'm like the future is matriarchy it's time for women to take the spaces that they need and take the leadership that they've earned to really make the decisions for the future. I feel like women just, they lead in a different way. We're so much more inclusive. We're so much more welcoming. And I think we think much more holistic. So I agree. It's really
1: for you, Erin, and for your generation to be doing this. Take what you need from us and move it forward. Advance this idea. Advance the idea that women. Can lead in a different way. They don't have to model themselves after men to do it. What does women's leadership look like? That's one of the questions I've been asking myself for years. And literally, you know, running a nonprofit and running Spark, you're pressed by funders and pressed by so many different factors to conform. And how do you keep from doing that? How do you keep how do you develop a vision and keep the vision moving forward? That's really hard.
2: Yeah, it's like you're building the plane while it's flying, and you know, you're visioning the plane while it's flying before there were planes. It's so difficult.
1: And you're repairing it, with it.
2: Yeah, exactly. You're changing the oil while it's in the air. You're doing it all. I could talk to you all day, I could interview you every day. I love speaking to you. Any chance I get, like I said, you always drop these huge gems of wisdom on me. So I, I'm so thankful that you're willing to come on and be a part of this series. So thank you so much. If there's anything else you'd like to add, feel free to do so.
1: I'm very happy to be with you here today. And I'm happy that you're taking the over for March. And I think you should be taking over for more time than that. <laughs> but I know well, thank- you. Keep doing your work, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, this is just a stepping stone. We'll see what comes next. But thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you coming on. And you have a wonderful day. Take care and be safe. You too. Bye, Aaron. Bye.
0: Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 Artist Grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.